Welcome to the official podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel Indy West. Our desire is to make authentic disciples of Christ who worship Him, walk with Him, and work for Him. You can find more information about Harvest by visiting our website at www.harvestindywest.org or by downloading our app from your app store. We pray today's podcast will encourage your pursuit of Jesus Christ. Matthew. Maybe I should really say we've been flying through the Gospel of Matthew. If you would join us by opening your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21. We're going to be beginning there. Uh, we've actually, in the last uh, four-ish months, we have covered what really is about three years of Jesus's ministry. And um, we're grabbing big chunks of it, kind of seeing themes and movements of it. And the overall thing we've been seeing, and I'm telling you, it goes to a whole new level as we begin today through the rest of the gospel, is Jesus has been turning lives inside out and upside down, and uh, it's only beginning. I love it from here on out through the end of the gospel. And uh, just a story, we're in the last week of Christ's life, we're in the Passion Week, and it is nothing other than epic. Uh, he's entered Jerusalem, the beginning of chapter 21. We finished with last Sunday. He doesn't enter on a white horse, uh, bringing in judgment and ready to make war. Uh, that's Revelation 19. He does, though, ride in on a donkey, and he knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He is riding in on a donkey to his death, and he does it willingly and lovingly, and we're going to see here boldly as well. It is time for Jesus to turn the religious establishment upside down and inside out, and it is epic. Have I said that yet? It is epic. In fact, speaking of epic, in this whole epic rumble, if you want to think of maybe another way of viewing all this in an epic manner, you might picture the triumphal entry as the elevator ride, Maximus, Decimus, Meridius, and Emperor Commodus is on the elevator. Remember that in the Gladiator movie? Yeah, if you love God, you've watched it. <laughs> and there they are in the elevator rising up to the Colosseum floor. That's the triumphal entry. And then on the Colosseum floor, we begin today. The people are all there watching. They're on the edge of their seats. What is happening? The heavens are on the edge of their seats. He has entered Jerusalem, and everybody knows it's going to be an epic rumble showdown of all times. Yeah. <laughs> and I love it. And... Uh, let us not forget every moment of this week, of the Passion Week. Jesus knows exactly what's going to go down. Remember Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19? He said, I will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn me to death, deliver me over to the Romans, be mocked and flogged and crucified, and I will be raised on the third day. He knows exactly every movement, what's going to be happening. We're in this very interesting section here, both this Sunday and next Sunday, 
I'm calling uh, both of these the gospel rejection. The gospel rejection. Uh, That includes the establishment and the people's rejection of Jesus. But in it, as we'll see here, it also includes Jesus' rejection of them. Now, you may think that doesn't sound like a very gospel message, but actually, uh, rejection is a core reality underlying the gospel. But as we sang, the fact of the matter is, is that uh, rejection of the Lord is trumped by his redeeming work on the cross. And if we don't understand what's taking place in, in the rejection of things, we really don't understand what reconciliation is. We really don't understand what redemption is in the story of the gospel. And so Matthew here brings these two texts, I, I, kind of these two Sundays as I'm breaking it out, on this epic moment of Jesus has some moments with the leadership. And it is, and it is, okay, now you're with me. Sorry, my bad lead-in for you there. Hey, by the way, here I am speaking of Gladiator and Epic, and it's Mother's Day. And you may be going, (laughs) Pastor Doug, that's a little awkward. Um, Why all this? Let me just say this, moms. uh, Happy Mother's Day, for one. Happy Mother's Day, seriously. Also along with that, actually, moms, I think, just as we're moving through the Gospel of Matthew, this text is going to be an encouragement to you. I really do. Why do I say that? I think two main reasons. One, because loving moms go to war for their kids. Loving moms go to war for their kids. And what we are really seeing here taking place is the Lord Jesus is going to war for his kids. And you're going to be encouraged by this. And know this, he went to war for you. He went to war for you. Secondly in this, the text begins with what I'm going to call a house cleaning and finishes with a wedding ceremony. Now, when the house cleaning, that's the last thing you want to hear about today, but I'm not talking about a house cleaning of dust and dirty dishes and, and so forth with that. I'm actually talking about the kind of house cleaning. Hey, moms, you know those times where you're like, look at your household and you're just like, it is chaos. And you are just like, you know what? It is time for a come to Jesus moment in this household And it is kind of time to lay your claim and to call out the family and to like, hey, everyone, let's bring it back together. You have that moment in here today. And your Lord leads the way in that. So it's a house cleaning moment. And we finish with this glorious, beautiful wedding ceremony invitation thing. So ladies, I think it's going to be an encouragement for you. Is that still awkward? Are we doing okay? All right. Hey, let me pray. And now let's dive into our text today, okay? Lord, thank you so much just for your goodness and your kindness. Thank you so much that we are going to watch you here both not just this Sunday, but in the coming Sundays to come. We're going to watch you go to war for your own. Lord, you didn't have to. You really didn't have to. But you did. And it changes everything. And so, Father, in these coming weeks, as we, as we walk through the remaining chapters of the book of Matthew, this is less about getting some application points for our week. It is more about just beholding you and taking you in and seeing who you are, what you have done through this work of Christ on the cross and the resurrection. Might we just be with you in this? 
take you in and behold you. You are amazing. And we get to watch you be amazing. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, as I've mentioned, Jesus uh, enters Jerusalem. And it's so interesting how Matthew brings it in. Matthew just takes us right to the next event. Actually, it's the next event, the next day. Um, I'm going to call it his rejection of a frivolous people. Jesus' rejection of a frivolous people. Let me begin verses 12 and 13, chapter 21. And Jesus entered the temple. It's important to understand, let me just pause there. It's important to understand that so much of what is about to take place in the remainder of the gospel is at the temple, around the temple. And in fact, I love this picture on the side screens that you can see here. It just sets the whole reality of what it looked like in that day and what's going on with it. And we're there. And Jesus, the day before, the Gospel of Mark tells us actually the day before was the triumphal entry. He then comes back out in in Bethany area. And then this is actually the next day. Uh, Matthew isn't so concerned about the chronology of things. Matthew is concerned about moving content. I would say it this way. Matthew is not so concerned about Jesus's uh, uh, daytimer list. He's, he's more pointing out what he did. And as he goes through here and putting these things together in a theme. And so Jesus uh, enters the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And by the way, there were other sacrificial animals as well. Uh, Verse 13, and he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Okay, it is epic. It is epic with what's happening here. He enters in. He takes on what's going on. And do you get the idea he's not pleased? Do you get that idea here? Something's going on that he's not pleased with what is going on. And and he is entering the temple area staking his claim after the day before having the whole triumphal entry. He's staking his claim at the temple. And as we go through this, by the way, I would encourage us to keep in the back of our minds 1 Corinthians 3.16. 1 Corinthians 3.16, and it says this. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Listen, follower of Christ, believer of Christ, who's received Christ as your Savior, all of this is taking place in this physical temple, has a practical spiritual reality going on, and Jesus has entered in, and he has laid claim to what is his. And he is making a call out, and he is rejecting all of the frivolous activity that is taking place by his own people. So what's the problem in the temple? Well, the problem isn't money changers and and sellers. That's actually not the problem. What is the problem is the where and the how. Uh, Understand, when God set up the tabernacle and then the temple, God designed it, God put it in place. This is God's idea. And part of that idea meant the structure of it all. In fact, you can see the, the walls around the temple, and then there's the two big courtside areas. That, that's the court that, that for the Gentiles. They could go into that. Everybody would enter through that. The Gentiles could stay in the outer courts, and then on the inner courts, you could go in, and the Israelites could go in there and then move in, uh, and you see the temple there in the center. And, and what is taking place here is God had designed it such that 
uh, into money changers and, and, the, and providing the, the sacrificial animals was not a problem, but they had moved them all inside the court of the Gentiles. It used to be outside the walls. Let me say it this way. All the noise and the activity of the changing and the preparing and everything was outside the wall. And you were to come in and have this, this time where there was a, uh, sure there's people there and things moving around, but also this space where you could get out of the noise of everything. And there have this dedication time unto the Lord in, in relationship with him. And yet what had happened is over the days, over the years, over the decades and the centuries, all of the outside activity uh, Picture it and picture it in our own lives. All of the outside activity began moving in and crowding the inside activity. You with me? And so what was taking place was in the court of the Gentiles, all of this pigeon selling and all of this uh, trading that was supposed to be on the outside was taking place on the inside, and the inside got all ruffled up. Imagine, so the Gentiles, if they would come at Passover here, and I think the city of Jerusalem, I think there's likely some two million people taking place at the time in this, and all this activity going on, and people coming in, and even with the movement, it's hard enough as it is, but then you've got pigeons for sale, pigeons for sale going on. And the Lord, after he comes in the day before and entering on a donkey, he comes back the next day and he goes right to the temple, as the Gospel of Mark shows us. He goes right to the temple and he stakes his claim and he calls frivolous people out because of all of the activity that even wasn't necessarily wrong activity but it's busy activity, it's noisy activity. It was all crushing in on where activity with the Lord was supposed to be taking place. And Jesus calls it out. It was a frivolous people doing frivolous worship in what was supposed to be a set-apart place. Frivolous people doing frivolous worship in what was supposed to be a set-apart place. It was also the how. Notice Jesus says, uh, pulls out of the Old Testament, you make it like a den of robbers. Implied in that comment is the idea of not only the where of where it was taking place, but the how. Clearly, there was some dishonest, frivolous activity going on in the exchange of all this. Surely that had gotten to that point. It had become more of a moneymaker than it had become about Passover. And so in it, he calls it out. By the way, let me just pause for a moment in this. Maybe you grew up in a very legalistic structure or mindset or teaching, and sometimes when that's happened, I've observed with people that they have this kind of understandable mindset where the things, the standards and guidelines that the Lord sets in place, because the Lord had set certain things in place at the temple and how things are to take place. And sometimes we have this idea that, that all of what the Lord puts in place is just put in place to annoy us. I want for you to know this. God does not put standards and guidelines in place to annoy his children. He puts them in place to protect his children. He puts them in place to love on his children. It's for our good and it's for his glory. 
And, and, and that, as I said, sometimes that means he does things to protect us. Don't do that. Just, just don't do that because I'm protecting you. Sometimes he doesn't do that because I want to teach you something. out of. Sometimes he has us even, you know, he's had his people over the centuries do things to where it's like just do that to picture it. And Passover was a picture. And God had asked them to carry out Passover week as a picture of what God had done all the way back in Egypt for them in the present day to remember that God is active in pulling out and redeeming out of people. And sometimes we just think it's frivolous. We just think God is putting these in place. But know this, even if sometimes if there are some things we don't understand why God has us do or not do certain things, sometimes it's just one of those things where we go, you know what, it's for your glory. It's just because you're glorious. That's all I need to know. So I want for you to know this. God does not put guidelines and standards in place to annoy. He put them in place for our good and for his glory. And here what was happening was God's people over time was just not caring as much about some of God's standards and guidelines that he had put in place around the temple and all the noise was moving in. Before we move on, because we've got a, a lot of text to cover, I want to make one other note. He says, it is written out of the Old Testament, and Jesus says, my house. Okay, can you imagine that in that day? If you know anything of what's going on, and if you don't, you'll find out here in just a minute of the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. And when Jesus comes in, and he quotes an Old Testament passage, and in him saying it, says, it is written, my house. Ooh, dog. Some people are honked off. Why? Because even in the manner in which he is saying this Old Testament text, it's giving the implication that Jesus is kind of declaring this as his house. And I would like to say this. It was. And he, in the triumphal entry, oh, I just love this. In the triumphal, he comes in. And the next day, what's he do? He puts his foot down in the temple and he claims his ground. In the Colosseum, game on. And watch. You would think right now, this would be the time he would just do a <laughs> fry everyone. But look at this, this is so sweet. Verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. And he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did... <laughs> Matthew puts that in, just the wonderful things that he did. And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. By the way, that deck of children are making this. Sometimes the blind and the lame and children can be annoyance in worship. We can, as cultures, we can view them as they get in the way. No way, man. Jesus is like, I'm here for you. And here even the children are making declarations coming off of the day before. Hosanna, save us now, son of David. That's an Old Testament term. The children are making the declaration that this is the Messiah. That is a strong declaration. Oh, and the chief priests and the bad dudes, they pick it up. Listen, because they were indignant and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? In other words, hey, do you understand what these kids are saying and declaring about you? And Jesus said to them, yes. Boom. 
If I could, just in my own little mind, I actually think that that yes, that was the one word that moved everything to where Jesus not only knew what was going to happen, but in the minds of the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that one word, yes, right there in light of agreeing with it, yes, I know exactly what they are saying and I am good with it. That was the moment that all of a sudden the cross was in view of all of the chief priests and Pharisees and the scribes. When Jesus made the declarative statement, yes, he was essentially saying, because that's who I am. Yes, you have, have you never read, which means they have read, but they're not thinking. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. It's kind of in the, if I could just say in the original language, it carries this idea with it that the praise of children is like a perfect kind of praise. By the way, those of you who serve in children's ministries, thank you for that. And know this. When you hear those little ones giving praise, Scripture says that there is something going on with the little ones who they don't even understand all of what they're singing and praising, and yet there is something wonderful and perfect in what they're doing. Verse 17, and leaving them. In other words, yes, have you never read? Out the door. And he went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. Friends, it has begun. It is game on. It is epic. And it is his rejection of a frivolous people. Next, his rejection of a fruitless people. Verse 18. In the morning, when is it? In the morning, they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Beth... I'm sorry, I am all of a sudden jumped over wrong column. Here we go. Verse 18. In the morning... As he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a tree, by the way, the fact that the second person of the Trinity became hungry, there's a sermon right there, but I can't go there. He became hungry, verse 19, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it, found nothing on it but only leaves. Can you see him? I'm hungry. He goes over, it advertises that it's alive with figs, and he all of a sudden he looks under the leaves and there's no figs. And he said to it, I mean, no fruit ever come from you again. I don't know what the inflection was. I just kind of made up that inflection. Maybe it was like, may no fruit ever come from you again. Maybe it was just very straight. May no fruit ever come from you again. Was he hangry? <laughs> I actually don't think so. Let me clarify that in a moment. Let me just read the rest of it. And the fig tree withered at once. Now that was cool. Can you imagine being one of the disciples there? Because they were there, as we'll see. And it's like, no more figs from you. Woo! Verse 20. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, I would say, saying, how? How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and, know, and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. It's interesting in this whole dialogue, uh, I just quickly, if I can summarize it up, because we're doing a big flyover on it all, um, I actually am intrigued by the fact that the disciples asked the how question, they didn't ask, ask the what question. 
They ask, how did that happen? And so Jesus answers that. Actually, he answers that. So it was what he had talked with them in Matthew 17, not too long ago, about prayer and so forth. I actually don't think that's Matthew's key objective here. He's just telling what happened. I I wish the disciples would have asked the what question. Like the, Jesus, so what was the purpose in that? Jesus, wait a second. What just happened there and why? Jesus, what, what was going on in there? Jesus, are you trying to teach us something here? Because actually, I think this is not Jesus was hangry. Jesus was actually doing something to teach them. Remember, the whole movement is triumphal entry the day before, he then uh, uh, triumphal entry, th- then the next day, he comes and stakes his claim on, on the temple grounds, and then the next day, they're walking back in, and Jesus is setting their mind. He's setting their minds on what's going on. Why do I say that? Because the Old Testament refers to Israel as a fig tree a number of times. One example of that is Hosea 9.10. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel, God said. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season. And they're coming back into the city of Jerusalem. The heart and the center of where God is supposed to be supreme and, and, and leading and the people submitting and seeing God as the Lord there. And yet as they're coming in, I think Jesus is preparing them. He's making this comment, this observation that in his hunger, if you will, there is this fig tree. Nothing is worse than, than a tree that's supposed to have uh, uh, supplying food that's fruitless. In fact, uh, Carson, I love the way he says it. He says, its leaves advertised that it was bearing, but the advertisement was false. So here's this fig tree. It's advertising to come, and it's because it has figs. And you get there, you go through the leaves, and there's no fruit. Friends, there is a key reality with what was happening with Israel in the day, and there's a truth that can be applied to our own lives as well. Israel in the day was putting on the, 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 the look of life with Yahweh, but the fact of the matter is, is there was no fruit going on. And here, this is a, almost a parable-like declaration of Jesus' rejection of them. By the way, what fig farmer wants a figless tree? What fig farmer would continue with a figless tree? Fruit is part of a walk with Christ. And if there is no real fruit going on, you have to ask the question, is it just a false display of life? And that's what was happening with Israel. That's what was happening with him. His rejection of a frivolous people, his rejection of a fruitless people, and third, it then turns. And now it's a people's rejection of his authority. Let's take a look. Verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching, and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Let's hold there. I actually think their question, which is really two questions, is the perfect question to be asking. It's a valid question. It's the right question. By what authority do you do these things? 
by the way, uh, we don't quite have it so much in our culture of understanding, but in that day, if you were to be heard in the rabbinic schools or if you were to be heard by the chief priests and the elders, you had to cite your rabbinic training. You had to cite your sourcing of it. In other words, modern-day terms, they were asking for Jesus' cred. They were asking for his credentials. Hey, hey, you're teaching here. Tell us, by what authority? By what authority? Then the second question is, is who gave you this authority? By the way, by the way, it implies that no one can be self-authoritativeized. Self And that's so interesting in our culture because we are all in a culture that everybody thinks they can be self-authorities. I am an authority because I think it. Therefore, I am. And if you push back on my thinking about that, you can't do that because I am my own authority. That's the world we live in right now. It's a foolish reality. Because if we think we are our own authorities, loved ones, you and I are in big trouble. Because let's be frank about it. Who are you and who am I? We live in a world, in a culture, that thinks we can be our own authority, and especially online especially online. They're asking the right question. I wonder if Jesus has something to say. Do you think he does? I think he does. Jesus answered them, okay, I also will ask you one question. Oh, I love this. Like, who's in charge? And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. From where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves. Can you see? It's like, hmm, let's talk about it. Hey, everybody. Hey, guys. Huddle up. And we get their conversation. Now, if we say that he came from heaven, then he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say he's from man, we are afraid of the crowd, and for they will hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, um, sir, we do not know. By the way, for those who are around this watching, at what point do you go, wait a second, these are the chief priests. These are the leadership. These are the spiritual leaders of us. And they can't even answer the simple question of where John the Baptist came from? Wouldn't you think, wouldn't you hope that people are like, wait a second here, what is going on? We don't know. So he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Kaboom. I just want to say this. I love my Savior. These are the kinds of things where you come along and you go, I am telling you, this is no duped dude. 
This is no ignoramus. This is no just someone caught up in himself. This is no just like some Mr. Rogers with a British accent kind of a movie thing. I'm telling you, friends, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is headed to the cross. And he's going to go. People's rejection of his authority. And then Jesus follows this up with three parables. Just quickly, we'll watch these. So Jesus, after saying, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things, he says, what do you think? I love that, by the way. By the way, Jesus loves people who think. He loves people who think. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and he said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not, dad. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. One of the important things you and I don't see in the text here in the original language is actually this can be, in, can be translated as, he, he, but afterward, he repented and went. That's the idea of it. That's what repentance is. He's like, no, dad, I won't do that. But then he repented. And the dad went to the other son and said to the same, and he answered, I will go, sir. But he did not go. Oh, think about this. Display of I will go, but no fruit of going. And then Jesus says, which of the two did, did the will of his father? And they said, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. By the way, may I remind us, Matthew was a tax collector. The tax collector and the prostitutes, those who are the outcasts, might I term it in this terminology, those who were rejected by the people are the first ones to go in. Verse 32, for John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds. You did not repent and believe him. He tells him this parable of rejection of a father's authority. Then he goes on, a rejection of a son's present. Here in presence, here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went then into another country. When the season for the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. By the way, if we could say what Jesus is telling, he, Jesus is telling this whole story of the entire Old Testament. He sent his servants... And yet the tenants who were given uh, the opportunity to benefit from, to care for what the master actually owned, they killed them, they, they beat them, they stoned another. Verse 36, again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them. 
The picture that we have knowing Jesus is saying this, and Jesus, the Son of God. Finally, he sent the Son to them, saying, they will respect my Son. But when the tenants saw the Son, they said to themselves, this is the heir, come let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. Boys, you're not understanding the story, are you? And Jesus said to them, have you never read in this scripture the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this, his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Hello, boys. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So many things I could say, but I just want to read the last parable here. The re- a rejection of a wedding invitation. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be ca- compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent another servant saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and they went off, one to his farm, another to his business. Why? They were so consumed with their own little gigs going on that what the king had to say and what the king had to invite them to wasn't very interesting to them because their own little things were more interesting. Is that not telling oftentimes of our lives? So engrossed in our little things that the things of the king become an annoyance. They paid no attention, went off, one to his farm, another to his business, verse 6, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite the wedding feast, as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to them, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? By the way, what would happen in the culture of the day, a king at times would hold such a banquet like this, and knowing that all of the people that were invited could not have, could not afford to dress up to the kingly kind of standard that was put in place, the king would actually provide garments for people who couldn't afford to come in, and they would come in, picture this, they would come in, they weren't, they, they, they couldn't have enough to, per, to per place themselves there on their own, so they come in and they put on the kingly garments, allowing them inclusion into the hall. 
One more time, there's the gospel. To as many as who would receive him, to them he gave right to become children of God. And then the king said to the attendants, bind him, hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. I'm going to let you theologians chew on that over lunch. Friends, what's going on here? What's going on here is something that is so spectacular that I think we just oftentimes read by it. What is going on here is the second person of the Trinity. Philippians chapter 2, God in the flesh has come. It is the final week. He knows he's going to the cross. And he enters Jerusalem. And he lays claim on the temple grounds. And he goes to war for his children. And he knows that all of this conversation and everything that's taking place is going to, in just a couple days, lead to his death on the cross. Think of this. He is going to pay the price for the ones who reject him and make his work available. This is the story from the very beginning. Adam and Eve, created for God's glory to bring him grant glory and just everything was there, and yet they rejected God's perfect plan for them. And yet even in that, Genesis chapter 3, God promised that one born of a woman would come and deal a lethal blow on Satan. And friends, that one is in the Colosseum. And he's going to war. And it leads to the work of the cross. For the work of reconciliation. Well, next week, we continue the journey to the cross and the empty tomb. Lord, thank you for this uh, opportunity that we have to be able to just see you. God, I'm really not so interested in us walking away with a certain application for us for this week to do. God, I, I'm just, you know, I'm just more passionate about that we would behold you and what you have done. Maybe it's that we would re-behold you and what you have done. We get to walk with Christ to the cross. We get to see what he did, including things of taking on the establishment, might I say, the, the establishment of the rejection of him. And God, all of us know that. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all rejected you. And that is what sin is. And yet for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And God, we get to rewatch what you've done here in going to the cross and revel in it and, and have joy in it and, and to behold you and to just be in awe of who you are. 
And Father, I pray for the person who maybe all of this in the story of the work of Christ and what he has done is new. Maybe it's the kind of a fruitless tree to where it's been life, but there's real no fruit of life. God, I pray that they would come and talk. They would get with someone and sit down and ask, what does it mean to look like to have life with Christ for real? Why did he die on the cross? Why did he raise from the dead? And what does that matter for me? God, we're going to take in that journey. Father, I thank you that in your grace and your kindness, you have provided the means of redemption, the means of reconciliation, of rejoining back a people who by our very nature have rejected you. The invitation is out. The call is out. Come to the wedding feast. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you for who you are. In Christ's name we pray.